Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Like, as you know, I've been studying Egyptian. It's been something I've wanted to do for a long time, but now I have a little time. So it's exciting. That is exciting, indeed. Is there any particular reason you're doing this? Yes, probably three reasons. One is having a knowledge of Egyptian culture and history and religion helps inform our understanding of the Hebrew Bible. Two, I just love the idea of learning from a different culture that's very different than my own. I'm very much part of the Greco-Roman heritage, and they do a lot of things very differently in ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. And like, I think there's a lot I can learn, a lot of wisdom, a lot of principles. And then third, and this isn't my primary reason, but dealing with Book of Abraham studies, there needs to be at least some background in Egyptian studies. Okay. So Derek has all the good reasons for learning Egyptian. This is just what Derek does, guys. He just finds worthy pursuits. He just yeah, does them. He it, just learns tough. Egyptian. It is, it's tough. It's way tougher than Greek because, like, I just wish all this stuff would be written in Greek and that would be so much easier. <laughs> but, yeah, so far it's been fun. Okay, so we are in the book of Helaman and we are analyzing chapters 7 through 12. Before we go ahead and exegete Derek, yeah, that is the first time I pronounced that word correctly the first time. You are all witnesses. Is there any literary, historical, or theological context you want to give these chapters? No, I think we should just go ahead and get right in and then see where, where it goes. That's great. That's great. So uh, I'm going to start. Uh, I have something to start to say in Helaman chapter 7. Do you have anything before I just go? Yeah, let me just do one thing from okay. verses 5 and 6. Okay. So here we have the narrator describing the wickedness of the Gadianton robbers, and there's a really insightful analysis, and I just want to bring out some of these points in verses 5 and 6 of Helaman 7. And it starts in the kind of in the middle of a sentence, but condemning the righteous because of their righteousness, letting the guilty and the wicked go unpunished because of their money, and moreover to be held in office at the head of government to rule and do according to their wills, that they might get gain and glory of the world, and moreover that they might more easily commit adultery and steal and kill and do according to their own wills. And then he goes on to say that when Nephi saw this, he was just so traumatized and he was so sorrowful because these people had arranged the thing where they could kill with impunity. And that's exactly speaking to our day, right? We have police and prosecutors who cover for each other. And we have people who do not take the the lives of black and brown people seriously. And there's people who go unpunished because of their money. And we see the interplay with capitalism here. And there's some people that it literally says they want to get gain and the glory of the world. What's, What's more capitalistic than that? Getting fame and fortune. True, true. And so I just wanted to lift up that these Gadianton robbers are a great example of what happens with privilege and power because they can arrange the whole system to their advantage. Right. There's no such thing as pulling up yourselves by your own bootstraps when people have rigged the game against you. So we should always be mindful, like the narrator is here, of power dynamics. It mm. is a very important theme in the scriptures. Mm. And those who condemn social justice, we're not going to name her name, <laughs> but those, of, those who condemn social justice... Do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Ooh. Because it's right here. 
I remember in her thing, she's like, let's not talk about power and let's not talk about these dynamics. And she's like, but I'm like, that's why it took me almost three hours to explain <laughs> how the scriptures are about power dynamics. Uh-huh. And you have to an- analyze, just like Mormon does here, you mm-hmm. have to analyze the power dynamics or you don't understand what God's doing among the Correct. people. That's why your video was long is because you had, you realized there was so much information missing, so much that had to be laid down before you could even explain why her words were problematic. Is that, do I understand? Yeah. That and for our listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, I made a, way too long video response to that article about why Latter-day Saints should be concerned about social justice. Mm -hmm. And I had to go back and do some foundational work in the scriptures because Mm -hmm. she was trying to claim, like I said, that everyone's equal, so we don't need to talk about power. (laughs) (laughs) Just for your own benefit, guys. Like I give Derek a lot of crap about his stuff being way too long, but (laughs) his first video in the series is actually very... uh, it's very informative, and I'm probably going to be referring to it or using it as a reference. Wait, you actually watched it? Don't dwell on that right now. Like, just focus on the fact that you did a good piece that is worth referring to on a regular basis. Like I said, I give Derek, and I have given Derek a lot of crap about the length of his videos, but this is actually... Well, yeah, just watch it on double speed, and it'll only be like 20 minutes long. <laughs> And that's well, part one. And it's part one. It's part one of the video. And he doesn't even get into the content of her article. Part one doesn't get into the content. Well, I mean, there's just so minutes. much wrong that you have to do the, you have to. Do the groundwork. You have to. You just because you can't to. meet her on her level. You cannot. You yeah. cannot. So, yeah, watch that video. We don't have it posted. I mean, it's posted publicly on YouTube, but we haven't uh, uh, posted it on any of our socials. So, like, is there any place that you'd be comfortable with us putting the video? Yeah, we can put it up somewhere. I don't know where. But I don't (laughs) actually intend that many people. I don't don't intend that many people to watch it. But if they want to, it's there. I'm about to say, if anybody will want to watch it, it's probably going to be among our listeners. So, when we do release that video, guys, we'll let you know where it is. Just be on the lookout for it. Because, like I said... I haven't watched part two yet. I don't even know if it's out, but part one, part two is out? Yes, and okay. part three is out too. Woo! Okay. Altogether, so. it's, it's only 2.5 hours. It's only 2.5 hours. <laughs> Sound like a salesman right now, Derek. I used to tell people when I sold stuff, <laughs> oh yeah, this whole thing that you don't really need for your house, it's only 100 bucks a month. Like, <laughs> But anyway, definitely watch this first part, guys, because it's foundational to just about any piece of social justice work that you'll be doing. Anyway, moving on. Is there any part, any other part of uh, these particular verses that you want to talk about or address? No, let's get into where, where Nephi starts preaching. I think that's where you're starting. That right? is where I would like to start, yes. So um, this is going to start in about verse 13 or 14, I think. I really need to learn to have my scriptures and my notes open at the same time. But look at what we got in these verses about starting in 13 all the way to the end. Now, what we have in these verses, Nephi seems annoyed first off. He was having a good, loud prayer in a tower in his garden by the highway, and then a bunch of people gathered around to see what was going on. Frankly, I would do the same thing. Just gather around, see who's this dude praying all loud in the garden tower. Nephi seems annoyed, and the first question he asks is basically, why are you here? Are you here so I can tell you what's wrong with you? And then Nephi spends the remaining half of the chapter 
telling the Nephites what's wrong with them and what is going to happen if they don't correct themselves. This is what he tells them. You have hardened your hearts and won't listen to God, so God will scatter you. You have forgotten God in the day of your deliverance. You murdered, you lied, and you stole for the sake of riches. And unless you repent, you'll lose your land, and the Book of Mormon land is just about everything when it comes to uh, possession. The Lamanites, this is what he says about the Lamanites. They will be better off than you if you don't repent. In fact, they're already more righteous than you. You guys embrace the corruption of Gedeanton. You've been lifted up in the pride of your eyes because of your riches. You've committed wickedness and abominations, and you will be destroyed if you don't repent. So Nephi's going in on these dudes, and rightfully so. But when we get to the next chapter, we see some pretty awful, pretty pathetic, and pretty familiar tactics to deal with Nephi and his preaching and his exhortations to repentance and his condemnations. And this is where I start to see an analogy. So let's move on to uh, chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. We get some corrupt judges trying to turn the people against Nephi. Verse 1, why do ye not seize upon this man and bring him forth? These are the, chief, these are the judges speaking. That he may be condemned according to the crime which he has done. Why seest thou this man and hearest him revile against this people and against our law? So apparently... Nephi committed a crime somewhere in verse 7, somewhere in here by telling his people that they're sinners and that they need to repent or else God will destroy them. And also, he apparently spoke against the corruption in their law, the corrupt judges. Then they proceed to start villainizing Nephi for daring to speak up. Moving on to verse 5. Therefore, they did cry unto the people, saying, these are the judges again, why do you suffer this man to revile against us? For behold, he doth condemn all this people, even unto destruction. Yea, and also that these, our great cities, shall be taken from us, that we shall have no place in them. And now we know that this is impossible, for behold, we are powerful, and our cities are great. Therefore, our enemies can have no power over us. Look at this exceptionalism, Derek. Like, do you see what's happening here? Do you see anything analogous to what we're experiencing in the current moment? Yes. Yeah, there's there's a lot to, to say. I I really think what's going on here is that when you're doing God's will, you're going to be seen as unpatriotic. Absolutely. And people in power are going to be threatened. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be claims against you, but mm -hmm. we have to do the work anyway. Yeah. And I think Nephi really speaks truth to power here. Mm -hmm. And they don't, they, they you know who, who, people without faith love to use the word impossible. <laughs> yeah. And this is what they're saying. Like, look, it's impossible, these things that you think are going to happen to us. Another, a lot of people in the church think that change is impossible. Like, mm -hmm. oh, we're never going to change that. Yep. People without faith love to use the word impossible. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that's impossible for God. Like, mm -hmm. God does impossible things. For real. Let's back up and talk a little bit about what this crime was that he did. Because obviously, uh -huh. he really threatened people in power, and they reviled it. Uh, he, they accused him of reviling against their laws, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? How many people do you know here that talk about, oh, law and order? Like, I don't even like that phrase because of how manipulative and abusive it gets used. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so let's see how Nephi violated law and order. I love what he did back in verse 20 of chapter 7. He says, oh, how could you have forgotten your God in the very day that he has delivered you? So what Nephi does is he appeals to the Nephites' group identity. Mm. It's an important way of reaching people. He appeals to a remembrance of their heritage. Like, you should know all the ways that God held you and delivered you. And he's going to do that more yes. than once. And so 
one thing we should think about as listeners is how how does this impact what we're doing today, our activism, right? Mm-hmm. And how can we speak to the Latter-day Saints and use our heritage to create change in the church? Mm-hmm. And a lot of scholars talk about the three worlds of the text. There's the world behind the text, there's the world of the text, and then there was the world in front of the text. And you have to have a conversation with all three worlds. The world behind the text is like the cultural and historical background, like everything else that's going on. The world of the text is the world within the text, like what is being narrated within the text, like what can you know directly from the text. And then the world in front of the text is us, because it then it speaks to us. And so you have to cycle between and move between the world behind the text, the world of the text, and the world in front of the text. And I think Latter-day Saints are so good at looking at the world in front of the text. Like, we're always about applying it to your life and everything. And we have to do it in dialogue with these other worlds. And where was Mm -hmm. I going with this? Oh, yeah, we're talking about why what he did was so powerful. I think... And what law he broke. He... Well... You, like I said, people in power are arbitrary. They uh-huh. they get to make the laws. So mm-hmm. whatever they say is against the law is against the law. And we, we see that in our day as well. Mm-hmm. But what he did, the real law he broke was he spoke the truth. And uh, he, he held, held people accountable. Look at verse 24 of chapter 7. Behold, they are more righteous than you, for they have not sinned against that great knowledge which ye have received. And it's interesting that these Nephites should know better mm-hmm. We've, and that they should be accountable to that knowledge. You know, as saints, knowledge is our birthright and our inheritance, and we need mm-hmm. to do better with what we have than we so far have, have done. Absolutely. You know, it just really is frustrating that we have all these treasures and then just don't use them. Mm. And I think that's, that's what got him in trouble, is he spoke and people— were convicted on one level. They, they, they were offended. They were threatened. They weren't convicted to the point of repentance, but they were convicted to the point of wanting to get rid of the source of that accusation mm-hmm. rather than actually getting rid of the problem. And we see this a lot today. People would yep. rather just cover up the problem and say, yep. all lives matter, yep. than actually address the fact that there's a real problem. Yep. At this pause in the narrative, I really want to draw that out a little bit more and talk about what Nephi represents in this particular moment. Now, perhaps this is just due to a limit or of my own thinking or how I view the struggle for civil rights or how I view certain people in this uh, present moment. But in this immediate analogy that I see, I likened Nephi to Kaepernick. He was the first person who came to my mind when it came to their similarities. They're, they're not saying anything new. Both are referring to previous prophets. They are both men of means. Kaepernick was a star quarterback and Nephi, I mean, I don't know how rich he is, but he's clearly rich enough to have his own garden and a tower in that garden by the highway. It sounds like some rich people real estate to me. Mm -hmm. There's that whole thing. And he told people what was wrong. That's the most important thing. He told people what was wrong, what they were doing wrong, told them it needed to be fixed, and he warned what might happen if they did not fix it. And the response to Kaepernick was very human. And it was also very similar to what happened in Nephi. You've already pointed out some of those things. He threatened people. He dislocated them and made them uncomfortable. Immediately, people tried to paint him as the villain and see themselves as victims. They were saying stuff like, how dare he revile against this great nation? 
Who am I talking about right now? How dare he condemn us? We're strong and our cities are great. We're number one. Nobody will have power over us. Who am I talking about now? Many of those in the Nephite nation, rather than inwardly looking at themselves and their sins and determining whether or not Nephi's words have merit, they decide to make themselves the victims and stir up everybody else to anger and encourage them to revile Nephi back because the Nephite nation is great. They are powerful and this man who condemns us and says they shall be taken away from us. They want to just boo this man. That's what it, that's what it sounds like. Now, you've already alluded to this, but this is a very common tactic from those who don't want to engage in conversations on anti-racism. I was, I was talking to a young white woman, not a couple, not very many days ago. The conversation was about a common problem that many white people her age are experiencing right now, particularly those who are being activated in this new moment, in this new civil rights moment. But basically this is putting people at odds with their family members and some people in their immediate circle. Uh, this particular young lady is married to a black man. She posted on social media not too long ago asking, what is she doing wrong? What more can she do? Because she talks to her family pretty, pretty regularly about race issues. And when she simply talks about, yet when she simply talks about the disparities between uh, black people and white people, she gets made out to be the bad guy. She has sent these people books. She has recommended books, recommended videos they could watch to help explain this stuff. She has referred people to the best minds the black intelligentsia has to offer so that members of her family might understand this stuff, understand what her husband is growing, going through. Uh, her husband has talked to them about this stuff, I would imagine, relating his own experience. Certainly the person, the man that she married, would certainly be able to tug at the heartstrings of her family because it's his family too. Like that, that makes sense. However, they still make her out to be a villain. They've called her a reverse racist and probably more than that. They've basically made her to be the bad guy in any conversations about race. I, I share this specifically to let people know, especially allies at this moment, that in 2020, a lot of racism or other kinds of bigotry you encounter is a choice. We, we've got the internet. Information is everywhere. We've been saying Black Lives Matter for at least seven years. Personally, I'm of the opinion that people who are ignorant of systemic racism, of homophobia, of misogyny, and other kinds of bigotry in 2020, they are ignorant by choice. They are psychologically invested in not getting it because having to face it causes their own sense of innocence and moral rightness to crumble. So they'll perform all kinds of mental gymnastics to not hear what you're saying, to not hear the struggle of black people, to not hear their allies. They'll say stuff like, you're the real racist for pointing out problematic behavior, that you're the one making everything about race for simply affirming the value of black life or saying black lives matter, or that you're the one creating division by telling America to do better by black people who have for 400 years suffered under a system that white Americans benefit from. Do with that information whatever you guys want, as I'm not going to pretend to have an answer that works for everybody. But personally, I have made 2020 the year in which we have social distancing in the midst of a global pandemic and the world's largest ever civil rights movement. I have made 2020 the year of boundaries. People are getting cut off. Mm. We're not mm. debating black humanity with people that think it's up for debate at all. We're just not doing that. We off that. Yeah. We off all of it. That reminds me of something with, with the whole All Lives Matter thing. Like people on on the side of justice have come up with all these cutesy analogies you know what i'm talking about right mm -hmm. 
all these analogies like the burning house. Yep, the burning house of like, or if you're if someone comes up to you and said, "Oh, oh my my dad just died," and you said, "Well, all parents die," that's mm-hmm. not what you say to someone who's in the middle of pain, or you know, right. these other cutesy little analogies. And and then someone online said, "Look, we're done with these analogies because the all lives matter people they understand mm-hmm. they're just racist, right? Like, right? The problem isn't information. It's it's the problem isn't not knowing. Like they know." They know. That's why I say this is a choice. This ignorance, this uh, level of racism, like that is a choice now. Like we can't blame ignorance anymore. Yeah. Not for the majority of the people who are still choosing to not get the analogies, who are choosing not to get it. And you know, the, this go, goes back to Cap. And all these people now, the hypocrisy is pointed out when they say, oh, look at all these, these uh, violent riots and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, they say, and then they say, "Well, look, these people. They there's. They should protest peacefully. Where were you when Cap was For protesting real? peacefully With his knee? Right? Did you That's hear that? He... Did you hear that? <laughs> yeah, like these people never spoke out in in support of Cap when it was peaceful, and then when it wasn't peaceful, they said, "Oh, we well, should just do it peacefully." There, see, this is goes back to what I said about the Gadiant and robbers. They rigged the rules so you can't mm-hmm. win. You can't win. They're gonna keep raising, and we're gonna see that later in the. In these verses as well, they're just going to keep raising that ceiling. You reach the yeah. requirement that they say they need in order to repent or to take you seriously. They'll just push that ceiling. They'll raise the bar. They'll push those goalposts back. Yeah. And uh, one more thing that's just came to my mind as you spoke about the hypocrisy of the criticizing Kaepernick. I don't know where white people get off criticizing civil rights movements at all. You had 400 years to get this right. We are taking things into our own hands now. And you want to critique us? You had 400 years to clean up your own mess. We off that. Y'all don't get any position to try to tell us how to fight for our own rights when you have failed for 400 years to give them to us. We are off all of that. Sit down. And I think the... I don't know if I have the wisest advice for this young white woman, so maybe I shouldn't say anything. But what I would say is count the cost and figure out what you have to sacrifice, whether it's your reputation, whether it's some access to something, whether it's a relationship. Mm -hmm. There are things that are more important than, well, I hate to call it convenience, but there's (laughs) things more important than our comfort. Absolutely. And I think standing up for what's right, no matter what it costs you, actually moves minds. It's mm-hmm. just like when people saw the anti-Nephi Lehi's die rather than violate their covenants, they mm-hmm. said, wow, there must be something mm-hmm. bigger here. Yep. yep. And if this young woman is getting pushed back from her parents, figure out what what is the costly signaling that her parents will look at her and say, look, she's not choosing this because of her own self-interest or anything like that. She's choosing something. And that's really what Dr. K- I hate to... to bring up every white person's favorite black person. <laughs> but that's what Dr. King did. He had a moral witness in the face of like, I'm willing to go to jail. I'm willing to risk death and actually die because something's more important than that. And I think people looked at that and realized, oh, if they're willing to walk on their feet in Montgomery for over a year, mm-hmm. rather than take the bus, there's something real here. Yep. And I think that moves minds. It opens consciences in a way that just speaking doesn't. Right. And I think if if the parents realize that this young lady is doing the right thing because it is 
even though it's very costly, mm-hmm. they will realize, wow, there's something here. Definitely. I totally agree. And I think she's actually taken that step. I did hear back from her a day or two ago, and she said that she was taking immediate steps to cutting off communication from members of her immediate family, which is very admirable. Something that, I mean, I know that's hard. Cut off members of your own immediate family. But, you know, when you elect, and this is, you know, I don't want to stray too far off of this conversation for a moment, but I feel like a lot of white people, when they marry into black families, don't really understand this. Or when they marry black people, they don't really understand this. You are going to have to ride for your black partner to the point where you might have to dispossess in some way members of your own immediate family because that environment is just toxic, you know? If you expose your spouse regularly to racism of your friend or family group, that is a problem. And that's something that needs to be considered Mm -hmm. anytime you have these interracial relationships. And I'm just glad that this young woman had the courage to be willing and actually cut off immediate communication from her family for the sake of the family that she started herself, the man that she chose, and probably the children they'll have one day. Oh, my gosh. And that's the the brilliant power of this is there is power on the bottom because what she has done is made their racism costly for them. Yes, yes. And that's where you get some real power. And I love the – that's how nonviolent – resistance and direct action works it doesn't create a conflict it uh, brings the conflict yeah, to, to the, the surface, surface yeah. so that people have to deal with it mm-hmm. and uh you've got this um tension that does get created and you know latter-day saints especially white latter-day saints we don't we don't like tension we don't like no. contention we don't like of the devil after all <laughs> you know we like everything to be nice and pretty we don't want to be feel uncomfortable yeah and, you know, sometimes we do need to, to be made uncomfortable. And that's where exposing the injustice to, the, to make a crisis mm-hmm. that needs to be resolved uh, to bring this crisis to light is the power of, of resistance. And I, I love that, that this is what she seems to be doing. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But anyway, moving on, there's, a, there's an interesting editorial note in verses 7 and 8. It says, and it came to pass that thus they did stir up the people. This is talking about the judges. They stirred up the people to anger against Nephi and raise contentions among them. For there were some who did cry out, let this man alone, for he is a good man. And those things which he saith will surely come to pass, except we repent. Yea, behold, all the judgments that will come upon us, which he has testified unto us. For we know that he has testified a right unto us concerning our iniquities. And behold, they are many, and he knoweth as well as the things which shall befall us as he knoweth of our iniquities. Nephi had either sympathizers or at the very least people who knew he was right, people he could, who felt convicted and knew he was right. And rather than get mad at Nephi for telling the truth, I mean, they could have been mad for all I know, but rather than get so indignant that they try to silence him like the judges did, they listen and they tell the people to leave him alone. This is critical to me right here. This is the difference between being uncomfortably right and being comfortably wrong. And I hope people are able to like pick that out of that little brief verse. Now, at this point where after these people defend Nephi, he feels constrained to say more. And I find what he has to say also very interesting. He spends the next several verses telling people, rev- telling the people reviling against him that I'm not the first person to say or do this kind of prophetic stuff. 
He names names. He, he brings up Moses, Abraham, Zenus, Zenic, Isaiah, Jeremiah, somebody named Isaiah. I don't know who that is. He brings up Father Lehi. He brings up Father Nephi. They've all been doing and saying this kind of stuff I am right now. This is nothing new, and y'all still don't get it. That is basically what Nephi is saying to these folks. And then that made me consider that Cap did the same thing. He is not the first person or even the smartest person to say like all this stuff about racism. He's just the loudest voice and he was the guy for that particular moment. But he he has been quoting uh members of the black intelligentsia and the, you know, the people that I would regard as prophets in the black intelligentsia from the past. He invoked the names of Martin, of Malcolm, of Du Bois, of Huey, of Stokely, and others. Nothing Cap said was new or groundbreaking, but like I said, it was his moment, but in given the response and the effects that are still resonating to this day, Cap probably did something important in the invocation of those names and the invocation of their teachings. Uh, now, look, this is this to me. Wait, wait, the, let me. Oh yeah, go ahead. Just say, and it, I think what the difference is is Cap didn't just use words. And right. He didn't. Oh, some these other thinkers just didn't use words either. They were, right. They were very active. But I think what made people mad was the fact that Cap made it costly for himself. He made it costly for himself. Because he said, I'm going to do this anyway, even if it messes up my career. Mm -hmm. And that's what made people mad. Yeah. Because if he would have done something that didn't have any cost and didn't have any, any, any threat to it, then people wouldn't have, would have just ignored it. I think what made people but so people upset... But people couldn't ignore it. Like, he what, did it. Yep, that's exactly what, he, what made people mad, is that they did something... He did something that was costly. He took a risk, a personal risk, not a risk of the truth. Obviously, he's on the there's no doubt about what that, but there's a risk of social reaction. And mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. the he counted the cost. And that's 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 really the message of the cross. Jesus yeah. says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow my example. We're not mm -hmm. supposed we're supposed to take upon ourselves these risks. Yes, sir. So uh, now moving to verse 24. Again, this to me is uh, the real kicker. He says, And now seeing ye know these things, and cannot deny them, except ye shall lie, therefore in this ye have sinned. For ye have rejected all these things, notwithstanding so many evidences which ye have received. Huh? Come on in here, man. Nephi knows what he's doing. He knows he's doing too much to get these people to take him seriously. He knows he's doing way too much. He knows they're not concerned with truth, but with comfort, as you said, Derek. They have all the evidence they need to know he's the real deal. And so he calls them what they are for denying his truth. He calls them liars. And that's a very accurate label. Personally, that's how I view many people who embrace racist ideology. The existence of systemic racism is a, a statistically indisputable fact. And 86% of black people, according to Pew Research Center, agree that racism is a systemic issue. Do you know how hard it is to get 86% of any group to agree on anything, Derek? <laughs> we don't even, we can't get that many people to agree on ice cream. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like 86% is significant. Our brightest minds as well have testified to as much that racism systemic, of the systemic variety is real and that these movements for civil rights are justified. So to deny all of this, to remain steadfast in sentiments akin to all lives matter, to insist that people closest to the pain of racism are wrong about what they're experiencing because Candace Owen said so, is to lie to yourself and resign yourself to the fates which Nephi finished outlining in verse, uh, in verse 25. Behold, ye have rejected the truth 
and rebelled against your holy God, even at this time, instead of laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where nothing doth corrupt, and where nothing can come which is unclean, ye are heaping up for yourselves wrath against the day of judgment. Verse 26, for everlasting destruction, yea, and except ye repent, it will come to you soon. Nephi's teaching us a lot here, man. He, he's teaching us about the lengths people will go to rationalize sin, about the gaslighting that way too often occurs in doing so, and how prophets often repeat each other and as often as necessary. Is, is there anything else you're pulling out from these verses or anything yeah, else from this analogy? Yeah, something that, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a spirit and a fire behind Nephi's words that, mm-hmm. that makes you have to confront it one way or the other. I think that's why there was a division. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a division earlier, and then in verse uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass there rose a division among the people, insomuch that they divided hither and thither and went their ways, leaving Nephi alone. So what happened was some of the Nephites believed him and some didn't. So speaking the truth will lead to division. So all these people who say, oh, you're being divisive. (laughs) Well, what you are is being prophetic because you are putting people in a confrontation where they have to choose and they have to reveal which side they're on. And that's what people don't want to do. This is so true with the LGBT world. Mm -hmm. People want to be nice and sweet (laughs) to LGBTs. That's not what we need. We need equality and justice and dignity and the same thing that everyone else is having we just we don't need a plate of cookies that that's not (laughs) what i need right i can make my own cookies yeah but but yeah i love how he spoke so powerfully um many of our listeners may or may not know of rabbi abraham joshua heschel who was a, a jewish civil rights activist and he said and i will never forget this he said that racism is maximum hatred for the minimum reason. Have hmm. you heard this before? Yes, I have heard. I've actually heard you say it, actually. And it's so like it rings true because ma- let's talk about the maximum hatred. Almost every horror in our in our world, genocide, slavery, the Holocaust is based on racism or, or ethnocentrism maximum horror maximum hatred like i just can't even think of anything worse than these things on a Mm -hmm. on a large scale Mm -hmm. and two for the minimum reason there is literally a chemical in your skin that's supposed to be there it's in your skin and my skin in different amounts and just based on the amount of melanin on our skin which is the minimum it's like it's the like that it's nothing right it Mm -hmm. shouldn't be anything but for the minimum reason, people have maximum hatred, and it's just so evil and stupid. Like, um, yeah, and and speaking truth to power really gets people mad mm-hmm. because they're gonna have to uh, give up their comfort. They're gonna have to give up their privilege if we're right. Definitely, and that's probably why they got so mad at Nephi. I believe that is the reason they got so mad at Nephi. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about 7 and 8. That is, uh, that's all I wanted to bring out. Is there anything else in uh, chapter 8 you wanted to talk about before we move on to the uh, other chapters in Helaman? No, um, and I don't really have anything for chapter 9, I j- and I just have one thing in chapter 10 okay. that I wanted to bring out. Cool. Let me just point it out here. It, this is this idea of after all of this conflict and controversy, 
In verse 12 of chapter 10, it says, And behold, now it came to pass that when the Lord had spoken these words unto Nephi, he did stop and did not go unto his own house, but did return unto the multitudes who were scattered about upon the face of the land. Mm -hmm. And this is after the big speech where the Lord gives Nephi powers, and then the Lord says, you've got to call these people to repentance, and you've got to do all this stuff. He got this revelation literally on his way home. It narrates it several times. He was on his way home, and then when he got this revelation, he stopped, which is important. We need to actually sometimes stop. And then it says he did not go unto his own house. And I love what it does here that this revelation caused him to change course. Mm -hmm. And he didn't go home. He went back to the people that needed him. So prophets need to be resilient and responsive. You can't just say, well, we've got it right and we can just keep going in this direction. But we need to be open to change. And I think mm -hmm. that's the key to unlocking what's, what's happening here is he realized he needed to say something to these people right away. I did notice that on my read-through. Uh, I actually, that's the one sentence I have highlighted after, you know, he gets the ceiling power and all that stuff. He did stop and did not go into his own house. I was like, there's something profound about that. But I feel like this really speaks to the quality of the relationship he has with the Lord. The Lord just got finished telling him, basically, I'm going to give you the ability to do pretty much whatever you want in my name because I know you're not going to do anything that's against my will. You're not going to do anything that, uh, you're not going to do anything amiss. I trust you completely. Mm -hmm. Here's my power. Do what you want with it. And you know, what you just pointed out really speaks to that. The fact that, I mean, after you just have communion with God, I know after Sunday, I need a nap. You know, after going to church, mm -hmm. I want to mm -hmm. take a nap. After these podcasts, I go home and I want to take a nap. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, like this, I mean, it takes it out of me. So I can only imagine how exhausting a meeting like this with God would have been. He would have been totally, in my eyes, uh -huh. justified in going home and just taking a little break. But he yeah. doesn't do that. He's in tune enough to realize he's being spoken to, and then he just goes to the multitudes, just like, nope, they need to hear this now. Yeah. This is important. Well, you know, that reminds me, talking about the sealing power, I met this sealer in the temple, and he was with his wife, and this is a totally true story. So I met this sealer, and he introduced himself, and he introduced his wife, and then he said, she does the floors, and I do the ceilings. <laughs> oh my gosh that's a joke i did not make that up he really told me that so by the time we get to chapter 11 we're at a point in the story where nephi has done more than enough to solidify his status as a prophet he has declared uh the people's iniquity he's exhorted them to repentance he told them that the chief judge was murdered who murdered who murdered him and how to identify the murderer while defending his own innocence he was actually in chains or ropes he was tied up somehow while all this was going on and uh, people are still cutting up by the time we get to chapter 11. They actually tried to put Nephi in jail once again, because after receiving the ceiling power, Nephi didn't take any breaks. As we've just discussed, he went back out and he continued preaching and folks tried to take him prisoner again. So at this point, the Lord might be ready to give up on these folks. In fact, there's another war. There's a bunch of wars that have been breaking out among these people and they're pretty much about to smite themselves to death. They're about to, smite themselves into extinction. At least that's the implication based on what Nephi asks for next. Nephi, in his compassion, asks God to not allow them to smite themselves 
by wars, but ask them to instead be smitten by a famine, to stir them up in remembrance of the Lord their God. That's what he says. And perhaps they will repent and turn unto thee. So what can we learn from, like, I didn't have enough time to fully parse this, but what can we learn from this collaborative effort with God? The fact that Nephi was able to negotiate the terms of people smiting. Like, is there something to be said of Nephi's relationship with the Lord where Nephi can negotiate the kind of smiting his people get, that they were able to collaboratively determine an appropriate punishment or an appropriate way forward? What do you think about that, Derek? What I think it does is it speaks to this significant amount of trust that God had in Nephi. Mm -hmm. God doesn't trust random people. He may not even trust all of his own prophets with that type (laughs) of power. Yeah. But I think there is a, a sense in which God is now treating Nephi essentially as a peer, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is what um, Exodus means when it says that, that Moses spoke to God face to face, Mm -hmm. you know, just man, man to man. Right. And, I think there's something powerful there, and that's the what we should attain is this idea to speak to God eventually is appear. Now, some people might think that's blasphemous, but if you look at our whole cosmology around exaltation, that we're the same species as God is, but just at a different stage of our development. It's like mm-hmm. larva to butterfly, right? Caterpillar mm-hmm. to, uh, to butterfly that's that's kind of what we are is that's where we're going and i think um in anticipation of that and grounded on that reality god wants us to become more like god and and develop those characteristics like righteousness and wisdom and initiative and responsibility so that we might become celestial adults and i think that's really what's going on here with nephi is something about him God could trust. And really, that's, that teaches us something about our interpersonal relationships. Because if I trust you, then I can handle what you give me, right? Mm-hmm. I can handle, like, accountability. Mm-hmm. And I'm accountable to you if I trust you. And I think there's a sense in which there's a give and take with God. And, and God says, well, what do you think we should do? And God listens. Right. And, um yeah, and I, I, a lot of think, people think that God won't listen to LGBT people and that we don't have a valid protest, even to God, right? That mm-hmm. we should just somehow sub- submit unto, unto something that no other people is asked to submit to, right? right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and people say, well, that's just so sad. And it's, but, in it, but yeah, I really think this is um, something that a comedian could maybe make some great insights about like how and and I wouldn't say it's the same thing as with racism the maximum hatred for the minimum reason but there's a similar thing going on of just arbitrarily picking the same gender love and thinking it's somehow different than than love between different genders like why are you picking that out as something significant mm-hmm. and people say well why do you make a big deal out of it and we wouldn't accept that homophobia has made us made that choice for us right like if i get fired from my job for being gay that made it a big deal right i didn't make it a big deal it's the homophobia that makes it a big deal correct i mean i really like that you brought out the accountability in here because later in these verses we actually see nephi holding uh, the lord accountable uh, later in chapter 11 he actually when the nephites finally 
bring themselves into greater humility, we see them importune Nephi to pray to God and have the famine removed and bring some rain down. In fact, in one of the verses, Nephi actually says, I think this is verse 14, Lord, thou didst hearken unto my words when I said, let there be a famine, that the pestilence of the sword might cease. And I know thou wilt, even at this time, hearken unto my words, for thou saidst that if this people repent, I will spare them. He is holding the Lord accountable for a promise that he's made to him. And I feel like that is super, super significant for people on the margins. For LGBTQ folks, I believe they can hold the Lord accountable for the promises that he's made. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's something super subversive in here in being able to acknowledge that you can make deals with the Lord. You can have a relationship with the Lord that transcends the one you have with your church leaders, uh, transcends the one that you have with uh, any other authorities. Yeah. And I, people use the word covenant all the time in our tradition, but don't think about what it actually means. It means that God has made promises, and we can hold him accountable to those promises. Mm-hmm. That's what a covenant is. It's this, this um, agreement. And if you look at covenants in the Hebrew Bible, it's not just a, like a legal agreement or contract. What it is, it's the extending of kinship on the basis of an oath. It's like, you are now part of my family, and I have these covenantal obligations to you because you're now family because of this oath that I've made. Mm-hmm. And um, so covenant really throughout the Bible is about extending kinship based on an oath with all of its accompanying obligations. And so the Lord has obligations. Mm-hmm. The Lord can't just do whatever, right? People think, oh, well, God can do whatever. No, if there's a covenant— <laughs> God, we've got some expectations, and we can say, hey, hey, you know what, God? These are my expectations, and I expect to be treated the same way as straight people, mm-hmm. by God and by the rest of humanity. And why am I seen as weird for making that claim? A lot of people think that's somehow pretentious or, or, or arrogant to just say, I'm, I'm wanting everything else that everyone else takes for granted, right? Why are they pointing me out as specific and different. And this gets back to who has the power to, to arrange the conversation and to write the rules back with the Gadiant and robbers. Because straight people are in charge in our society and in, in the church, they get to decide what information people have access to. They get to decide what the policies are. They get to decide the whole balance of 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 power and they can frame it whatever however they want and they've Mm. they've stacked it against my people and once you just look at it that way you realize oh there's a problem if the people that make this decisions they're not the ones that bear the cost if they get it wrong i them i'm the one that bears the cost if they get it wrong they have no incentive to get it right other than people holding them accountable to the consequences of their choices right and that's the same fire that was in the faith of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 and also in Matthew chapter 15, where she was able to even push back on Jesus and hold him accountable, saying, look, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. You've got to bless me, right? That's your character. You've got to bless me. Mm-hmm. And he caved in. And in Matthew's version said, great is your faith. Now, we've talked about the problematic aspects about um, the exclusion of the Gentiles in Jesus's ministry. Mm -hmm. But where I focus on is her faith. And like, what amazing 
faith and fire she had to do what a lot of um, other people who weren't Gentiles didn't do, right? Jesus even remarked on that. Yeah. About how much faith she had. Yeah, greater than anyone else in Israel, right? Yeah, not insignificant. <laughs> and I think that's why people think that, that LGBT people are faithless and apostate. We've got more faith mm-hmm. than everyone else. Every, everyone, every LGBT person who stays in the church has absolutely more faith than 90-something percent of the straight people in the church, right? <laughs> we just have to. And I'm sure it's true for every marginalized population in the church. Yeah. Because we know where God's going. Right. And we know what God's promises are. And we know those promises better than you are because we have to rehearse them to ourselves every day of our lives mm-hmm. just to continue functioning. Mm-hmm. And no one else has to do that. Right. Before we move on to the uh, housekeeping items, just want to remind you guys, we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. With Twitter and Instagram, it's BTBLDS. And um, yeah, yes, share sir. us with other people if there's something you liked. Share these ideas. Share the podcast. Let us know. Give us a, yeah, I like hearing from our people. Like there's hundreds of people that listen to us. And Maybe they don't think that they can reach out, but if, yeah, reach out to us and tell you, tell us what's going on and what you liked and what you've learned and how you're implementing these things in your life. And we would definitely appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah. That really helps us improve in the search results and ranks and stuff like that. So, yeah, if you got some time, just uh, give your boys a little five-star review. We'd appreciate it. Do we got any events coming up? Yes. So there is the Affirmation Conference. It will be held virtually over several weekends in September, starting September 12th. And you can go to conference.affirmation.org. And because it's online, it makes it very accessible to people because, A, you don't have to pay to fly to Utah. You don't have to pay for a hotel. You don't have to pay for, like, all the food and everything else at the conference. So what you're paying for is the content, and it's only $39 for the whole conference. Although if you're a local church leader, there it is free for you because we want our local church leaders to get some tools to help people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sign up for that. I'll be there. All right. Anything else for uh, for events? Oh, I don't know if people realize this, but uh, Carolyn Pearson is one of the keynote speakers, and so is Matthew Gong. Oh, I'm very neat. curious to what Matthew's going to say. We all know what Carol's going to say. But, I mean, she's been saying the same thing since the 1980s. Um, But, yeah. Such shade, man. I love it. I'm here for it. (laughs) What? I mean. Derek has these moments of very, not intentional, but genuine shade. And I'm just here for all of it. Well, part of it is, like, I like Carol Lynn Pearson. But part of the issue is, if we're going to have an LGBT conference, I would love to center the voices of LGBT people and have. Um, although I'm conflicted about that because Reverend Dr. Fatima and I both co-spoke at the um, 
at one of the as as the plenary speakers for one of the sessions and i'm so glad she was there like i think she what she said was way better than what i what i said you went before her right i did go before her i made sure fortunate very i made i made sure that that and i also tried to make it as short as i could to give her as much time as i could which meant that derek talked for at least 10 minutes it was about yeah, maybe 10 or 12 minutes. I can't remember. <laughs> but hey, if you're new to the podcast, go find it. I think it's Affirmation 2018 Conference, the Sunday morning session. Listen to me and then listen to Dr. Reverend Dr. Fatima. And then don't listen to me again. Just, <laughs> just, just sit with what she said. So I don't have this absolute prohibition against straight people speaking at LGBT conferences, but it has to be someone really special. Mm. All right. So if there's nothing else for events, I just want to let you guys know, uh, in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone, we launched a Glow page some time ago where if you are willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. Those who contribute anything get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us including access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback, uh, and, you know, whatever ideas you have for the show, uh, as well as guests we could potentially have on for our bonus episodes. You can access our notes and so much more. So if you don't have any coins to throw at us, you can just share our Glow page on your socials and you can still join our collaborator community. We have officially covered our startup costs so that has been a real boom to us uh there's a few i'm trying to think we got some other projects that we're considering working on we definitely are thinking about some kind of resource for members of the church who want to be able to exegete the way that we do as well as uh you know use our sacred texts for the sake of lifting up people on the margins and bringing them into collaboration and inclusion with the body of christ uh, you'll definitely be included in that discussion if you join our collaborator community because it's still in its infancy. But we'll say a little bit more about it as uh, the ideas uh, develop. But anyway, the site for that uh, collaborator or the site for becoming a collaborator is glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. There's a couple new collaborators we've had this week. Want to thank you guys individually for joining us. Celestia Ballard, uh, we want to welcome you. Kristen Matina, sorry, Kirsten Matina, welcome. Jessica Powell Alvey, and our good friends over at the Faithful Feminist, Channing Parker and Elise Pohl. Thank you both. I mean, it's been a long time coming. We 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 just need y'all part of this community anyway, simply because y'all are doing this same work. Yeah. We want to welcome anybody who's doing the same work that we're doing. Um, let's see. Oh, other thank yous. Want to thank uh, Eden Wen for uh, for running our social media, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, and also Tamara Kemsley for editing the audio of our show. You're all rock stars. We really appreciate you guys. A lot of what we couldn't do, a lot of what we are trying to do in terms of getting our word out there, as well as making this work more doable and sustainable, cannot be made possible without you guys. And I just want to say we got a lot of the best listeners. So many of y'all have volunteered yeah. your time and, you know, your talents and your professions to whatever it is that we're working on. And I just want to really let y'all know we so much appreciate it. It really validates what we're doing over here, um, that you guys are willing to give of yourselves in that way 
to what we're doing. It, it's just it's just super encouraging. It, it really mm. makes this worth our while. Uh, anything else, Derek? Nope, that's it. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to us till we meet again next week. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you next week.